This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. science got to do with this thing we call writing. Here on QWERTY, today we're going to talk specifically about where the brain comes in in all of this, this writing thing, and what in the world does it mean when we annotate our own lives. Here's the author of Wired for Story and Story Genius, Lisa Kron, live with us today in the studio to give us the lowdown on what we really do when we write. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited about this. I've been re- your book, Wired for Story, looks like my high school Karl Marx edition. <laughs> There's all these, you know, all remember when you, up. when you yeah, all marked up in it's crazy marked up. It's folded over. All those things that I kept saying, yes, 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 yes. So now we have you to ourselves and yes. we want to talk about this. Okay. okay. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I think that the question that I'd love the answer to is explain the idea of how brain science connects to story. Okay. Um, Well, here's really the thing to think of, which is we are literally wired for story. And what that means is, is that we make sense of everything through narrative. It's it's hardwired into the architecture of our brains. So that when you're writing, what you're writing is how we process information. And the way that we process information as humans is to ask ourselves, I mean, I'm saying we ask ourselves this, like we sit down and we ask ourselves out loud, but but our tacit and what's known as our cognitive unconscious, we are probing everything to ask mm-hmm. the question, is this safe or isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so the way that we determine that question is to turn to our memories. Because as neuroscientists will say now, and I'm, I'm working on a, a new book on stories, so I'm rereading all of the neuroscience again and, and kind of what's happened since I wrote Wired for Story, you know, up until now. And it's really fascinating. I'm reading a book now called uh, Your Brain is a Time Machine by a neuroscientist out of UCLA. And basically, you know, what he says, and this is in you know, many other books as well, is that the core mechanism of your brain is as a time machine to store past memories in order to predict the future. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. Our brain is also a prediction machine. So that when it comes to story, what we come to story for is not what's going to happen, but how is that going to affect me given my agenda, given what's important to me, given what I need. And that's literally how we make sense of everything. That's why This is why people have trouble with facts, because when someone gives a fact to you and you have no context within which to make sense of it, Mm -hmm. it just goes right over your head. Story provides the context that gives meaning to 
everything that's out there because a big mistake that we tend to make is we think there is an objective reality out there. Mm -hmm. And since everything we know, we know by definition, subjectively, all the meaning that we read into everything that's out there, you know, counting the facts. I mean, if we still even have facts, <laughs> seems to be debatable at the moment. Now, but, now yeah. we probably right. can't go there. <laughs> but if you look at a fact and you take one that you go, okay, that is a fact, people are going to come at it and read vastly different meanings into it. Yes. And the meaning that they read comes from one place and one place only. And that is what their past experience has taught us those things mean. That is story. Story is literally the, uh, you know, the simulations that we perform to try to figure out, okay, given what I want, what would I need to do to get it? Given what I'm afraid of, what mm-hmm. do I need to do to, to, uh, to avoid that? And that's what story is. Story is I, exactly I love that. this. It's narrative. I love that you see, and you say what I what I one of the things I really love about the way you write is you you go from the neuroscience phraseology to phrases like neuroscientists believe that without stories we'd be toast and I yeah, just, it's true you know and it's just so rewarding for the reader and of course we we do know what you mean I mean the Greeks believed this this whole sense of catharsis that we go to the theater to process what we believe and confront what we know within a safe space mm-hmm. and that's the beauty of story we get in there and we try to figure it out. And it seems your your work seems to so thoroughly clear up any questions of why we build story. You say the brain loves the if this, then that aspect of a tale. And I completely agree with you. I, I teach memoir as almost a crime mm-hmm. procedural. You know, yes. you sort of mm-hmm. throw down the what's at stake in the opener, creating a great gulf between who you were and who you want to be or who you were and who you are now. And you hook us. So you do this. You explain to us why this works. So let's look at it for a, for a minute. Let's look at it the other mm-hmm. way. And, and sure. why does it feel so good to write? Why does it feel why do people talk about i'm in the zone or it's Mm -hmm. the only time i'm happy or what are we doing as writers that that is clicking into that primal or pre-primal brain that we have that scientists are talking about well i mean i think it's two things first of all i mean there there, there are two things i want to say to that to that Mm -hmm. supposition one is i do think it's when we really are we've tapped into what we believe and it's coming out through to some degree our cognitive unconscious which is not the same as the muse or the zone i do not believe there's a such thing as, as the muse at mm-hmm. all oh well, thank but god it, oh it, thank it really mine god hasn't visited me in two <laughs> years so i'm glad <laughs> you know albert brooks's movies notwithstanding there really is no such thing as the muse right um <laughs> but but here's the thing that i would say that i would back up with that I think that writing is really hard. Mm-hmm. I think the opposite is true. I think that writing is deeply difficult because there is it's there's so much more to it that meets the eye. I think that it 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 it's painful because really often, in fact, I was just uh, before before we were talking, I was I was talking with a writer who's a very successful writer, and she's working on a memoir, and and the trouble that she's having is diving deeply into what you know what she's writing about what happened to her because it's super 
painful because mm-hmm. you're, especially with memoir, you're, you're often going into places that you have locked behind a door and now you're bringing it out to explore. So my feeling about writing is kind of the opposite. If it, if it isn't hurting you a little bit, you're mm. probably not doing it right now. Once you've gotten to that place and you're writing forward, then yeah, I think you have hooked into it and it does feel really great. But I actually think, don't get mad at me, no, no. I actually think that one of the big problems with the writing world is they talk about it feels good. And yes. so people just let it out and they write any old thing. And because it, it felt good, that means it's good writing or it's a good story. And I actually, th- I mean, I, I firmly believe that out there in in the, the writing world zeitgeist that almost everything is not only wrong, but takes you in the wrong direction. I think it's why, you know, they say that 97% of writers who sit down to write a first draft don't finish that first draft. Only mm-hmm. three out of a hundred. And then for those people, the ones who finish and then actually, um, let's say, you know, go through several drafts or polish and actually query an agent or a publishing house, 96% of them get rejected. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because a lot of people think it's supposed to feel good. And really often it doesn't. <laughs> I always say if it's not hurting you, so I just said to this writer, if it's not hurting you, you're not doing it right. I worked with one writer who was, uh, um, she she wrote YAs. She'd already written several successful YAs. And she said uh, that her mentor in college had said to her, when you're writing, if you get that feeling like you're going to throw up because it's so hard, right. grab a trash can. Hope it's not a wire trash can. Throw up in it and keep writing. <laughs> keep going. Because that's, <laughs> when you, that's when you know you are in the zone. That's great. I think that uh, that should be written on a national monument, I believe, engraved on a national monument because people do, they have this flowery notion of sitting in this ivory tower, just typing away all day and writing these incredible stories. And both, even my cookbook, which I wasn't mining any great depths, was extraordinarily Mm -hmm. difficult. And then, then, of course, the memoirs, Marion Knows, you basically have a nervous breakdown while you're doing it, and then you come out of the other end. So I think it's great that you yes. say that because I just don't think people believe that enough. There's this romanticized version of yes. what it is to write. Now, right. speaking about yes. writing and the technique of writing, one of the things in uh, 2012, you wrote a letter to the editor about the notion that language is the handmaiden of the story and not the other way around, master story. Everything else is gravy. Now, I had a visceral reaction to this because as a review of my book, someone said that language, he's made language his bitch. Language is extraordinarily important to me. So I'm thinking this woman is shaking the walls of my fortress of language. So can you explain to us, give us your definition of story on which we then will lay language once the story is foundation is laid? Yes, exactly. And if I could just say, I think the biggest problem with the way people come at writing is they they come at it as if it is about writing, as if it is Mm -hmm. about capturing the right language, as opposed to capturing the story. Mm -hmm. Because it is the story that gives the language its power. It's the story that's bringing it to life, not the other way around us. I'm really fond of saying the story polishes the prose not the other way around. And the problem is when you're just focused on beautiful metaphors or beautiful writing, or you end up writing what's known in the trade as a perfectly penned, so what? Mm. (laughs) Beautifully written, who cares? Because what story's about is story's about an internal change. Mm -hmm. That's what we come for. In fact, let, let me give you 
and again, this is, it doesn't quite answer your question. We can come back to that, but it's a, it's a bit of neuroscience that I was just reading that I think is so, it just was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I can turn around and say this and that there's, that there's several studies that show it. And there was a study that was done um, where they were trying to figure out both like what areas of the brain light up when you read, but then what are you focusing on? When you mm -hmm. focus on story, when you're lost in a story, what is your brain going toward? What are you responding to? And they took a swipe at, they said this was great. And apparently I, I did not know this before, but apparently beginning with Aristotle and Aristotle said, when you're reading what you're pulled into are the events, the plot, that's mm -hmm. what you're focusing on. And guess what? That's not true. When you're pulled into a story, whether it's a, you know, a novel, a movie, a headline, a, you know, something in the, in the paper, uh, you know, something around the water cooler, the first place your brain goes is who's the protagonist? Who's the point of view character? Who is that person? We go straight to that. And then what we do, and this is where story lives and breathe. And we do this thing. And this was a word I, I thought recently I, I had not never heard it before. And then I realized I, I had, but I had, you know, just sloughed it off because it sounds like British slang to me. Um, <laughs> it said, it said, then when we go into that person, we mentalize. Doesn't that sound like, like, like the British slang of, oh, he's so mental or something. Uh, right. Anyway. Yeah, it sounds like a tube stop in London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, 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 or a flavor of, of, of cough drop or something. Yeah. But but what it actually means is, is that we go into that person's head and we try to figure out what they're thinking. We of try course. to figure out what they want, what their motivation is. Are they, what are they afraid of? Where is that vulnerable part inside that they're not showing on the outside, mm -hmm. which of course is where story lives and breathes. I mean, it comes back to the, the notion of, of theory of mind, which, which hopefully, hopefully we come into when we're about three or four years old, which is the notion that we realize that other people have different thoughts than we do. You know, we're not all the same. Yes. That's what we're pulled into. That's what we come to story for. We don't come to story for what happens. We come to story for how it affects someone. Story is not about an internal, an external change, meaning a change in the plot. Story is about an internal change within the protagonist. I mean, the, the thing I'm the most fond of saying is story is not about the plot, which is why the two schools of writing um, out there, pantsers, which is, <laughs> which are people, people sometimes hear that term and they go, pantser. It's funny, <laughs> when I wrote, when I wrote, I guess it was, I can't remember which book I, I referenced pantsers in, and my, the copy editor at 10 Speed, my publisher, who you know, she, she doesn't write fiction, so she didn't know the fiction world, and she came across the word pantser, and she went, what is that? Isn't that that mean <laughs> thing that we did to kids back in elementary school? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> right. No, it's pantser, not... let's be clear, it's P-A-N-T-S-E-R, and and it's in yeah. Wired for Story, by the way, just yeah. to tell you. Exactly. Thank you. Because she was You're the welcome. same copy editor on both. Yeah. But um, but no, 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 that's someone who writes by the seat of their pants, meaning of they course. just sit down yeah. and start to write. Worst way. And then there's also the plotters, ever. too. And the plotters the are right. And that's the other school, just as bad. Because the mm. plotters assume it's about an external bunch of things that happen. Mm -hmm. And it's not. That is not what a story is about. A story is about an internal change that your protagonist makes. And if you're thinking like, wait a minute, what do you mean internal change? Like change from what to what? What are we even talking about? Right. The biggest point is all stories begin and medias res, which is a very fancy Latin way of saying in the middle of the thing, yes. the thing being the whole entire story. Page one is page one of the second half of your story because all protagonists, and the truth is really pretty much all characters, 
enter the story with two things already fully formed, something they want and they wanted for a long time Mm -hmm. that gives them an agenda because they step onto page one with an agenda already fully formed and a misbelief, which is, Mm -hmm. which is something that has, is holding them back. And misbelief is something that comes into our being really early in life in, in, in childhood, early teen years, really no later than that. And that's, again, all of this is just human psychology. I mean, this is what happens to all of us. A misbelief is a misbelief about human nature, about what we need to do in order to, to survive and thrive in the world. It's not a misbelief like, you know, I thought the world was flat and I hope you're sitting down because I've got a surprise for you. <laughs> Actually around, you know, I thought she was my sister and it turns out she's my mom. She's my, my mother, my sister, my mother. Yeah. <laughs> in screenwriting, they teach this as the, as the fatal flaw, as the right. thing that yes. you've got to get over. And this is what David and I right. were arguing about right. before yes. you came on the line because I helped David with his book, uh, his wonderful book, Notes on a Banana. And mm-hmm. he yeah. said to me, I have this thing, she's got this thing, I this idea of misbelief. I don't think I, I was panicking. I don't think I have that in my book. And I had to say, uh, David, not only do you have it in your book, but I taught it to you. It is yeah. that you grew up Portuguese, gay, and bipolar, and you really, really wanted to be the the only son of Darren and Samantha Stevens on Bewitched. And blonde hair, blonde. blue eye. That's what I wanted. <laughs> and straight and very, wow. very, very psychologically, you know, in a box. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So the, the miss, you know, and David's, in the, David's book, the misbelief is this idea that you should be blonde, straight, and mentally, oh, you know, a straight arrow too. And I love that, that you call it a misbelief and it works beautifully. And it's the transcendence. It's the yeah. going from what's at stake to what you tried to what works in every story that works the the mind of the reader through and into a new state of understanding. And that's what's so yeah. gorgeous about this. And I think what's interesting is when Marion reminded me that I did have a misbelief is because by something that I, I really, really wanted from a very early age is I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be accepted, but yet I was Portuguese and Portuguese were, when I grew up, were being looked down upon. I knew that I was gay from a very early age, but I wanted to be accepted. I knew that there was something really kind of off with me mentally and psychologically, but I wanted to be accepted. But I wanted, by the misbelief or the fatal flaw, I wanted to be accepted as a perfect television, blonde hair, blue eyed boy, which was never going to happen to dark haired, dark eyed (laughs) Portuguese. But boy, did you try to make it. I Boy, I did. And and the whole (laughs) journey of the book is finally dropping that and accepting myself for who I am. The acceptance that had to happen was personal acceptance. And so Always. these this really resonated so strongly with me once Marion point out that I have that misbelief. So let's talk about that that misbelief idea. Let's talk about the rules. Because one of the other reasons that I just love you and the page that's sort of tacked to my wall from your book is this whole idea where a neuropsychiatrist says that following your gut only works if you're prepared for the test and know the material. And I just, I just, I let out a big old whoop when I read that because I'm the one on those creativity panels where, I, and I get invited to these things all 
all the time. And, you know, the, and somebody Ooh. says very sincerely, what's creativity? And the first guy always says, <laughs> oh, well, you get your angel's feather and you get your touch yeah. with the right side. And, you know, I'm going, yeah. I'm making the, the, yeah. the horrible noises. And the next person says, you know, it's a dynamic process between the cortisol and the hemisphere of the, and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I always say it begins with discipline. And I'm the, like the bummer yes. of yeah. every creativity panel because I genuinely believe you've got to know the rules, follow the rules, sit in the chair, drink some caffeine, and stay there till you get the damn work done. Yeah. So you say that that's true, and I love you for that, but you also say that it's all in the rewrite, which is part of the rules. And so I want to just talk about the process of the rules a little bit, that we go from knowing them to living them, to then rewriting, which is part of the process. You know, just like maybe you could just give us a sort of a timeline of the rules and how you you see them, what what and where you learn them. I, I think a lot of people don't think there are rules. Rule you mean and you mean rules when it comes to to, 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 to nailing story. Okay. Yeah. And if if I could if I could because because when I wrote Wired for Story, mm-hmm. it was a lot of it was theory and in pieces. When I went back and wrote Story Genius, which is, you know, more, um, it takes you through exactly how to do it. Mm-hmm. I went deeper. And I actually think that the rules apply, the, the rules that there are, are the rules for how to find the story to begin with and how to create it. Rewriting, there's no writing, it's only rewriting, but there's rewriting all the way along. In other words, I've firmly believe that you that that's a massive mistake ever to sit down and just dump out a first draft like like the way that and I love everything else she does but uh you know Anne Lamott talks about get that first draft out child's yeah. draft the shitty first wrong, draft yeah the shitty first draft right I mean it, and which isn't to say that that you know first drafts don't need don't need work Hemingway talked about all first drafts or shit but she calls it the child's draft and she says you can romp all over the place because at the end of the day it doesn't matter and no one's going to see it so you can change it and the truth is the most important person on the planet sees it in the process and that's you and when it romps all over the place there's no story there almost always you need a page one rewrite and the problem when you do that is that we don't do it on purpose but our tacit allegiance is to what we've already written as opposed to the yes, story that we're telling, because we don't know what that story actually is. And then, you know, writers, and this is the, again, why I think so many writers give up, you know, they go back and now they're going to try to inject story logic from the outside in. And it doesn't work mm. that way. It's not, it's not top down, it's bottom up. So I think the rule is, I mean, if you want to go, how do you create a story is you've got to create the first half before you create the story, the second half, which means you have to go in and in that in medias res, very, very, very specifically with, with as much specificity as you are writing the novel, you have to go back and figure these things out and write them in scene form, not as a writers will often sum up a character's past. Mm-hmm. And it's like, think about it in real life. When you sum something up that happened to you, you've got tons of granular specifics and you're just taking a very general you know uh a few things that you can pull out and go okay that's the summation but if someone asked you you could give them all the granular specifics sure with writers when they do it they've just got they don't have anything but that so so the thing to do it i think is really to go back again we don't we don't come to story for what we come for why 
the wise internal and to create that that misbelief in terms of okay wh- what exactly happened and i don't mean ever in a simple declarative sentence or just i know what it is or i thought about it but i mean writing it out in again in scene form so we are inside the character's skin in their head because again that's a vulcan mind meld between your protagonist and your, you know, and your reader, and really writing that out in great graphic detail. And the reason I don't, I don't tend to use the word, and I know I did in Wired for Story. It's one of the few things I wish I could rip out. I, I don't tend to use the, the few things I really wish I could rip out. And this is one of them. So gratifying is, to hear that. Oh, you have no idea. Um, which is the term fatal flaw. I would mm-hmm. never use that because it sounds judgmental. Mm-hmm. It sounds finger waggy. It sounds mm-hmm. almost like you know what you did, right? You say that to your spouse, right? You know what you did. I'm not going to tell right. you. As if the person's <laughs> doing it on purpose. As if it's like this moral failing. And, and it's not that. A misbelief is something that comes in early in life that life teaches us that 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 really feels to us like I am so lucky I learned that really early on. And the reason that they come in early in life is because, and I'm sure you've probably heard of like, you know, Maslow, Abraham Maslow, whose pyramid of needs, right? Mm-hmm. Right. In psychology. Okay. And he says there's a pyramid of needs and at the base is is uh, you know, food, water, shelter, and the top I think is like a sense of purpose and whatever that would be. I'm not concerned about the top. It's the a bottom. remote control. The- That's what's at the top. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Netflix, but, Netflix subscriptions. Right, it's so true. It's so true. Do you know what Netflix is? A total digression. Do you know what Netflix says their enemy is? Uh-uh. Sleep. The enemy oh. of Netflix. Oh is sleep. boy, that's too funny. And we have to we have to get to digressions then, because you say digressions yes. are deadly, and look yes. what you just did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. kind of terrifying. Well, because that was on point. But right. to go back, but, but at that bottom of the of that pyramid of needs, you know, food, water, shelter. That's not the bottom. Mm-hmm. That is not the first thing we need. The first thing we need is someone who cares enough about us to give us those things. Because when you're a baby or a child, you know, if you're going to try to, if you're a, if you're a six month old baby and you're trying to get food, water, shelter on your own, <laughs> you're not going to live out the week. Yeah. So yeah. What, what we come to is we are immediately trying to make sense of the world around us. What do I need to do in order to survive? And that's where these misbelief com- misbeliefs come in and they're again taught us life teaches it to us mm-hmm. so we think well that's true that is I'm lucky I learned that early because if I you know think there are things on the level of the nicer someone is to you the more they're actually trying to use and abuse you so be careful now that's a mm-hmm. lesson a lot of people learn they learn it earnestly they don't know it's not true they think I am so lucky I learned that early in life because there are all these people who are trying to be nice to me and I would have been nice back, but now I know they're really trying to abuse me. So I'm going to reject all of them. Mm. You, you know, what's fascinating about what you're saying is if we apply this to therapy, this it is, is therapy. what people go in this to is undo is the 100%. misbelief. hundred percent. Yes. yes. And my sister's a therapist. hundred percent. Big chunk of my therapy that I talk about in the book with the therapist in my memoir was accepting the fact that I, getting rid of the notion I had to be blonde hair, blue eyed, and right. adopted son of Samantha and Darren Stevens, and accept myself as who I was. I had to break away from that notion of perfection. Right. This is fascinating because I think that this everyone carries this around with them, and I think when a book is well written with beautiful language and a great story, 
That's why that Vulcan mind meld happens because right. you but, identify on levels that you do not even know that you're identifying with yes. the protagonist. Of course. Oh, well, often you do, though. I mean, often. You think? Don't you have that? I do. I think that often a really good story, I mean, the irony is, is the stories in the specifics, all the granular specifics to mm-hmm. that character. And the more specific you can get, the more you're able to tap into a universal that everybody's going to feel. It's so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it's funny when you, Mary, were talking about creativity. I, I, I was teaching for a while at the School of Visual Arts. I have an MFA program in, uh, in visual narrative. Um, and, and the guy who ran the program knows, yeah, creativity. I know, Lisa, you're going to roll your eyes, you know, back in your head so far. You're, you're, they're not going to come back down again. Because those <laughs> notions of creativity or love or loyalty, they're generic. Mm-hmm. And generic and abstractions do not exist in real life. Mm-hmm. What exists is only the granular moment by moment things that have taught us to, to look at the world the way that we do. So story comes into that. But in the 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 universal it taps into, then when you when when all of us are reading it, we are applying that to our own version of that mm-hmm. so that. I mean, any book that you read, Harry Potter or some, you know, historical fiction, well, we're not going to live that life or be that person or, or Katniss Everdeen. We're not going to be her, but there are places where she's experiencing something that we go, yeah, me too. Absolutely. I feel that too. And we put it to ours. I mean, that's the beauty of writing. That's what people come to story for, those me too moments, the moments where, you know, I mean, I, I didn't think I could let that out. I thought I was weird because I thought mm-hmm. that I had a... I had a student at UCLA once who said, she said, I know on the surface, I look really put together. And she really did. She said, I know I look put together, but inside I'm a raging mess mm-hmm. and I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. Mm-hmm. Stories about the raging mess. That's what we come for. Oh my gosh. I thought it was me. Yeah. Absolutely. Stories about the secret that we all have. Stories about the universal. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to be reading for your own transformation. But it's one of the things that memoir writers, for instance, forget all the time. They think we're going to get involved in their plot-driven book. No, 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 no. I always tell them, we're not reading your memoir for what you did. We're reading your memoir for what you did with it. And it makes, I think it shifts the character off of center stage, but it's the same with fiction. It's the same when we go to a play. Oh, it's all the story story, regardless the content, regardless the genre. It's the universal. So am I off the mark by saying, when we're looking at story your way, not Aristotle's way or other ways, looking at through your, your point of view, that the character almost becomes the lens through which we understand and appreciate and relate to story. I would make that stronger. The character is the lens. Everything Mm -hmm. that every story, I'm sure you guys have heard that and out there too, you know, what do they say? Commercial novels are, are plot driven and literary novels are character driven. That could not be less true. That is such a (laughs) lie. Every story is character driven. Mm-hmm. Every story is driven by how what's happening externally is affecting the character internally, the meaning they're making from it, and therefore what they do next. Every, if it was just plot driven, it would be this happens, that happens, this happens, it would be surface. And we all understand the surface world. We don't come to story for the surface world. No. We come for what's going on beneath the surface. That's what story's about. How does a very unlikable protagonist fit into this? Because I don't want to identify with some really horrible protagonists. So how does that writer keep us? Oh, easy. We make the biggest mistake we make is when we think about making a character likable. 
and we tend to mistake likable for they do everything right in terms of what's expected of them, you know, in terms of the social construct that society has defined. That, why do you think you wanted to be a blonde hair, blue eyed, perfect person? Because right. you wanted sure. to be what society said was perfect. And is that perfect? Of course not. Right. I mean, we don't, we're not looking for people who are likable. I mean, you know, likable tends to be reduced to they would, you know, someone who would never swear, even if they like stub both toes, somebody who'd never hit a dog, even though if it was, you know, it has teeth sunk into their thigh, someone who would never steal anything, even if they're starving. I mean, right. I mean, based on that, if we were watching Les Mis, we would not like Jean Valjean at all. And we would be totally into Javert, you know, because he would never steal anything. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't come for that. When you think mm-hmm. think about it, I always think about it these days with Facebook. Like think mm-hmm. about Facebook and what drives people crazy. We've all got those friends who like they you know they look beautiful. They're they you know they they wear the, the most recent styles. Their house is perfect. Their kids their are breakfasts perfect. are gorgeous. Everything they got the best vacation. Right. Do yep. you like those? No. Do you like stand them? Right. We hate them. <laughs> but the other thing about people who seem likable on that level is they make you think. I wonder what they've got tied up in the basement because yeah, nobody exactly. is. We are more interested in quote unquote unlikable people. I mean, imagine if, imagine if when Edward Albee wrote, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, it was like after George and Martha had a bunch of marriage counseling, you know, and instead right. of sniping at each other in the secret and sunny boy, like now, you know, they have date night and they understand each other and they never go to bed angry. I mean, and they let each other finish their sentences. Yeah. yeah. Who would, who would watch True. that? I mean, I think interestingly, we're fascinated. Think about uh, one of my favorite books of all time is the talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. I mean, you know, Patricia Highsmith's book, not the movie. The movie was terrible, but but the book is you can't put it down. Or there's a book uh, called Perfect Days. Um, I'm, uh, the name of the author escapes me. I'm a very young uh, guy from, uh, um, I think he's from Argentina, he's Ar- Argentinian, I think. And, and it's told from the point of view of a psychopath. Mm-hmm. you know, a psychopath. So we are inside him. Who doesn't want to know? Well, how is he thinking? And, you know, he thinks like all of us, he's 20 years old and he goes to a party with his mother and he sees a woman that he really likes and he decides that he's going to woo her. And he does, you know, what we'd all do. He, 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 he tricks her to coming over. He knocks her out. He rolls her up in a carpet, takes her to a hotel and, you know, ties her to the bed for, you know, for two months. Cause that's what we'd mm-hmm. all do. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, we all have the potential for it. Absolutely. Right. The point We've- is though, we don't, we don't come for the what we come for the why. Don't you want to know how he makes sense of it? Think about, and this is a hard thing to say, but all of the horrific shootings that there are, what does everybody want to know? Why, Why? did he do it? What was he thinking? Why? Everyone asks the first thing the police do, what's the first motive? Thing. Why? Motive. And afterwards, I remember with one of the big ones recently, the sheriff came on a couple of weeks later and said, we feel really horrible because we have not been able to find out why we failed. Mm-hmm. Mm. Come for why. And why? always exists and comes from the past again because we make sense of everything based on what our past experiences taught us so that as Faulkner so brilliantly said the past isn't dead it isn't even past Mm -hmm. and that's why the work that you need to do to write to excavate this isn't like it's not pre-work it's not research and then you do the real work when you get to page one this is writing this is because most of what's there ends up in 
the novel or the memoir in the form of, of, of flashbacks, in the form of what goes through the character's mind as they're trying to make sense of what's happening in the moment, not because they're going down memory lane, not because something reminded them of something, so they're just musing about it, but because in every scene, a character is being forced to make some difficult decision. And so they've got to struggle with what to do. How much of my true self do I show? What can mm-hmm. I show? What do I need to hide? Because think about it. Every minute of every day, that's what we're doing with everybody. How much can I show sure. of who I am? And how much do I have to hide? And then we're always fighting with that. I want to show people who I really am because I want to be loved for my true self. But I'm afraid if I do, then they're going to reject me or make fun of me or use it against me. And then if somebody likes you, you think, yeah, they like me. But if they knew the real me, they wouldn't. And that makes them an idiot because they believed that's the real me. We're always going through that all the time. That's what story's about. Story gives us insight into that. And the only way to do that is to really work to dig up who that protagonist is. Story specifically, not in general. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, it's like saying, I'm going to write a 300-page either memoir, or well, not memoir because you know yourself, but novel about the most important turning point events in someone's life who I know absolutely nothing about. Right. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't and you couldn't do that. Um, of course not. So, yeah. That's where oh. that's where it comes from. Always comes from the past. And again, in the end, if I could just say one thing about language and to mm-hmm. talk about the notion of beautiful language, I think that that is the one of the biggest mistakes that writers make. And it's something we've been taught since kindergarten, which is that it's about language use and that writing means literally learning the techniques and the mechanics of writing. And it just isn't isn't true because if you think about words. Like, what are words that are either, you know, something written on a page or sign language or something that you hear in and of themselves? Words are nothing. It's Mm -hmm. a sound, a squiggle, a hand gesture. Words are empty. Words are nothing but a conveyor. And what they are a conveyor of is meaning and of story. The story is what gives, again, the words their power. Without the story, you just have beautiful words. And writing is taught that way all the time. You know, come up with a metaphor and use it all the way through. Well, why would you do that? Like, what metaphor for what? Why would you use it all the way through? If something naturally comes, fine. Right. But to, to look and to try to struggle to do that, that's that's that has nothing to do with story whatsoever. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when I was writing my book, one of the things I was very conscious of was language. I do love language. I, I have this love affair with language, mm-hmm. but I always sure. flagged in the margins whenever the language took me out of the story. When you became aware of that mm-hmm. language for language's sake, yes. then oh. it's not language, it's showing off. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. The, the minute you see the language, the minute you can see the writer in any way, shape, or form, you know, I'm, yeah. memoir obviously being different, but I mean the writer, you know, the, the, the person but, writing the memoir as a writer, the minute you see the writer, you're annoyed. It's like yes. you just broke the spell. And the minute well, you put anything in, you break the spell on that on that level. And you never want to wake up your reader. You don't want to do that. No, it's like putting epaulets never. on a dog. You know, you just yeah. don't need them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's they so do true. look good, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Only some dogs. Well, Lisa, this is fabulous. And we could talk to you absolutely all day. And, we, and I think we'll just have to come back for part two. I was going to say, would you be willing to come back on and talk to us more? This is fascinating. Uh, 
Absolutely. I mean, I love talking story. There's nothing I love more than talking story. Don't don't tell my husband I said that, but it's true. <laughs> and I think our listeners, once they hear the episode, will have lots of questions and I'm sure lots of protests, but we would love to be able to have you back on and talk about them. I Anytime. You just let me know and I will be there. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a joy. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>